thank you all for coming. You're here at the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Series. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm Ian Condry. Uh, I teach here at MIT and CMSW. Uh, and we're delighted and honored uh, to have Professor Hiromu uh, Nagahara here to give a talk today. Uh, Hiromu uh, got his PhD in 2011 um, from Harvard University in history. And he writes about music, uh, media, and class uh, as it's developed in Japan primarily in the 20th century. Uh, that's the focus of Hiromu's work. Uh, he is completing, completed, I don't know, where does it stand right now? Uh, a, his first book, uh, which he's calling Japan's Pop Era, Music and the Making of Middle Class Society. It'll be coming out from Harvard University Press. Uh, and the talk he's giving today is related to this original work uh, from his PhD and also uh, the forthcoming work that he's working on as well. Uh, also interested in information, class, Japanese society. Uh, so please, so the idea is to give a talk, we'll have a discussion afterwards, and I believe is there also a reception? I think there's a, a light reception. There'll be afterwards that you're all welcome to join. Um, we're handing out, uh, just one little announcement, we're handing out uh, flyers for an event that's happening next Thursday before next Thursday's uh, uh, colloquium. It's actually a communications forum uh, next week. Uh, wonderful talk, but we're also having a summit on inequality. Uh, they'll be happening next Thursday afternoon, so that's going on. Uh, but today, Hiromu is the focus of our attention. Please join me in welcoming Hiromu Nagahara. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for coming here and choosing to spend your af late afternoon uh, in, in this room here at MIT. Um, I'm delighted to come here, and I'm also delighted to um, sort of attend uh, CMS Colton. Um, actually, hopefully I'll be more part of it in the coming months as well. Um, and so, as Ian just said, today's, pro today's talk comes from, uh, partly from my first book, uh, which is uh, a book that looks at Japan's music industry when it first really got into gear from the late 1920s through the 1960s, um, during which time the music industry in Japan uh, produced one major sort of type of mainstream, what we would call pop music, that they literally labeled popular songs, yukoka, they, they marketed it as such. Um, and I looked primarily at how different critics across Japan's political spectrum across different sort of parts of society uh, criticized these songs uh, throughout these decades, um, mainly to think about what was the politics of mass entertainment media like uh, in these middle decades of Japan. Um, now, if you know anything about modern Japanese history, or even if you don't, you can probably actually guess that these decades were uh, some of the most tumultuous decades in Japanese history. So it starts out, if you think about the 1920s, uh, in the wake of World War I, uh, and you see uh, events happening like in 1923, Tokyo region gets devastated by the Great Kanto earthquake. Uh, of course, it's followed up by events like the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, Japan's invasion of Asia in the course of the 1930s, obviously World War II, uh, followed up by a Cold War, uh, and then in the, you know, towards the end of my book's story in the 60s, I get to a point where Japan is beginning to gradually emerge as what will become the second largest economy in the world, um, until it was surpassed, I think, back in 2010 right, by China. Um, now, so 
you can see why there might be different kinds of politics that might feed into looking at popular music and critiquing it. But I want to introduce you today uh, through my talk what I see as actually the main through line that cuts across all of these decades uh, and actually underlie many of the sort of more obvious political dynamics like World War II and wartime mobilization uh, that I think is actually at the heart of not only the politics of popular song, but I think ultimately the politics of culture in 20th century Japan. And that through line is, as the title indicates, I think this impulse on the one hand that I would call towards hierarchy, and on the other hand impulse towards democracy that I think is in constant tension and dialogue uh, throughout the course of the 20th century. Now, in the second half of the talk today, I want to consider how this two dynamics, impulse towards hierarchy, impulse towards democracy, gets complicated when uh, I think Japan experiences its first major mass media revolution, which will be in the 1920s. And I'll talk a little bit more halfway through about what exactly happened in Japan in those decades. And I'll particularly talk about uh, that change and the way that it affects the politics of music in Japan uh, through one individual, a man named Horiuchi Keizo, who I'll talk more about, uh, who is, among other things, uh, a man who earned Masters of Science here at MIT in 1923, mechanical engineering. Um, why he goes to music from there, I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But before I get there, I want to first introduce you to an earlier era uh, in moments in Japanese history when I think this tension between hierarchy and democracy was born. Uh, and that period is the period immediately after uh, an event called the Meiji Restoration of 1868. Uh, and Meiji is so named after, uh, so Meiji was the sort of the era name that was given to this era, uh, but was closely associated with the, the reigning monarch of that era, uh, remembered as Emperor Meiji. And uh, this is Meiji Emperor who, Emperor Meiji who when he, I think this is photographed when he was enthroned in 1867. And then this was him uh, after much of the cultural political changes that happened uh, in through the, the so-called major restoration. And essentially what happened in this event was a, this was probably the last major regime change that Japan experienced, where a country that was ruled by a ruling class of uh, the warrior status, the samurai, uh, on top of whom uh, stood the shogun, uh, Generalissimo. His official title is the august-sounding, the barbarian subduing Generalissimo, uh, aka shogun. Um, from that to what, by 1890, is a Western-style constitutional monarchy with a bicameral legislature. Um, so it's a major political event. Now, in an essay on the Meiji Restoration and Japan's subsequent industrialization, uh, the historian Thomas C. Smith had to, this to say about what he thought the re restoration did to culture. And he says, success in post-restoration Japan had very little to do with traditional skills and tastes, and much to do with double-entry bookkeeping, commercial law, English conversation, German music, French painting, and Scotch whiskey. In respect to such things, all classes of Japanese during the first generation or two after 1868 were born cultural equals. One could not learn the, of these things at home any more than one could learn, that learn their foreign language or the calculus. Such subjects were taught only in the schools, and the schools were open 
through evidence. Now, admittedly, this image of cultural democratization in the context of Meiji uh, <coughs> restoration is an attractive one, right? And you can kind of sense the energy that may well have existed at that time period where certain existing social conventions and hierarchies are done away with, unleashing vast amount of energy, uh, among other things, cultural energy in this period. And in fact, despite what could be read in Smith's argument right here, a very important caveat, during the first or two generations, 1868, and he doesn't actually say anything about after that, um, despite the existence of the caveat, I think actually much of what we understand about modern Japan uh, in the 20th century has been thought of and spoken of in terms of this inexorable cultural flattening, uh, and in some sense, democratization. And indeed, when we think about sort of how media, mass, uh, mass media, and how it's been talked about in terms of how it developed over the 20th century, you know, if we think about a through line, a linear course like from phonographs to, you know, internet streaming music, uh, it's also, in, at least in a very common parlance, the more, most common way of thinking about how media evolved in the 20th century is a sort of an inexorable flattening and widening in terms of access. And yet, in the decades following the first or generation, the first generation or two after the restoration, you actually start to see various kinds of hierarchies, both old and new, either re-emerge or be established anew in the Japanese context. And sorry, uh, and this is even as there is in the course of 20th century Japan a steadily growing class of people who consider themselves to be part of the middle class. And there is a growing number of mass-mediated entertainment that a growing number of people have access to. Ironically, though, the very efforts to democratize culture oftentimes reinscribe the hierarchies, both new and old, into the very cultural forms that were seen to be in most need of uh, democratizing or popularizing. And in this process, I think mass media emerged, at least in Japan, as a complicating rather than a simply, uh, broad, uh, simply democratizing force. I think that dynamic is especially evident in the context of uh, the emergence of what we could think of as Japan's music establishment. And in, in Japanese, cultural establishments were oftentimes uh, sort of given the same suffix, done, uh, in English, could be translated as base or platform. And so it, it came to denote various kinds of establishment. Music establishment was gakudan. Uh, uh, art, visual art establishment was gadan. Literature establishment, bundan, etc., etc. Uh, and these duns had several commonalities. They uh, oftentimes imbibed out of the same Western aesthetic, or at least the same set of uh, Western aesthetic standards and uh, documents. They came out oftentimes were connected to uh, major post-restoration institutions of state, like the university system. Uh, and so there's a way in which the official world, the state, connected or fostered these cultural establishments in the aftermath of the Meiji period. During the first half of the 20th century, though, such claims that so that these dons made, right, as cultural gatekeepers, as the sort of guarantor of aesthetic integrity of Japan, such claims came under increasing attack and, and were increasingly difficult to defend as practices and imaginations of mass consumption came uh, to be 
more white broadly experienced in Japan. And of course, this is especially the case when I get to the second half of my talk today, when we get to the mass media revolution of modern Japan. But before we get to that, I want to introduce you to, I think, sort of two, example, two examples of this tension that I, said, uh, that I mentioned between the impulse towards democratization and import, impulse towards hierarchy that you see at least in the musical culture of Japan as the, uh, the music establishment was being uh, created. And this, by the way, is a woodlock print from the 1880s showing a singing of Western songs in the plum garden. I don't know whose garden it is. Um, this looks very aristocratic, um, which, and I'll go back to this image later on. Um, but the first, the hierarchical impulse. Uh, to many members of the samurai elite who actually pushed the major restoration uh, and envisioned sort of wholesale change of society ultimately, right, to making Japan into a Western-style constitutional monarchy, uh, there were many things that they wanted to adopt from the West, but music was apparently not one of them, at least early on. Uh, and you see this in the way that uh, early Japanese samurai elites uh, talked about music, and, and including the music that they experienced in the West. And one example that I want to show you is that of the man named Kikawa Chokichi, who uh, was a young man who, went, who was part of uh, this major globe circumnavigating uh, official embassy called the Iwakura Embassy, where the Japanese government sent half of its key leaders, along with about 50 students, to visit, uh, to go through, they went from Japan across the Pacific to San Francisco, and they made a tour through the U.S. and ultimately through Europe, uh, where they uh, hoped to learn from the various things that were happening there, as well as uh, to renegotiate the unequal treaties that Japan was by then forced to sign. Now, they don't succeed in the latter endeavor, but they do succeed in both learning about what's going on in the West and also depositing these, grad, uh, these students, young students in their teens, in various American and European institutions. And Kika is one of them. He was left uh, in none other than in Boston area, uh, where he would eventually become the first Japanese undergraduate of Harvard College. Uh, but before that, he actually went to several schools in the area, uh, among others, called the Rice Grammar School, which I can't find it anywhere in this area, but also Chauncey Hall School, which, I, as I Googled it, it seems to be a school that still exists in uh, Waltham. So who knows? Um, but this is what he had to say about his experience of American music in Waltham. There was also singing at the school, but I, with others of my countrymen who attended the school, obtained excuse on the grounds that we had all that we could do in pursuing other studies. But in reality, we had in those days the old Japanese notion that singing was vulgar. It might be said, en passant, that I, have not, I, have, I never learned dancing, for I had the same sort of feeling on that subject. In fact, dancing elicited probably the strongest negative response from some of the early samurai visitors to America. Um, another very famous intellectual named Fukuzawa Kichi, who visited the U.S., uh, talked about how every city that they went to, they were oftentimes invited to these official balls, and they just and he saw these Western men and women just dancing about, and he said that you know I just couldn't help but laugh because it looked so odd. Or one of his colleagues just simply uh, recalled the recalled the dancing and said it was just unbearable. Um, 
Right. And, and the idea, I think, for dancing was sort of seemingly, from a Japanese samurai perspective, indecorous mi mingling of the sexes. Uh, but also, music itself, as you can see in the case of Kikawa, was seen to be inherently vulgar. Um, and I think that's something that's common across the samurai strata, strata of this era, um, who grew up in a Tokugawa period, a period that stretched from 1600 to 1868, uh, in which various entertainment forms and artistic forms were actually associated strongly with different stratas of society. Uh, and the samurai who were on top of it, uh, theoretically at least, were supposed to stay largely aloof of most of these music. Uh, now, in practice, actually, that the line gets blurred quite a bit, but you can see, as in Kikoa's case, that that kind of attitude towards music seemed to be actually fairly strongly ingrained. That didn't keep, though, other members of the same Iwakura embassy to find some good in the music that they encountered in the West. And this is where I think we see the more democratic or democratizing impulse. Um, I don't know if Kiko went to this, but Kume Kunitake, um, who was the official chronicler for this embassy, and others uh, records of attending this event called the World's Peace Jubilee and International Music Festival that happened in Back Bay in Boston in 1872. And this was an event that was supposed to uh, celebrate the end of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, as well as the Civil War in the United States, and to celebrate peace, as it were. Um, and it was this massive music festival. Um, this is a kind of a temporary structure that they built in the Back Bay. Uh, and, and if you Google it, you can also see like illustrations, contemporary illustrations of the inside. It's sort of this massive hall. Uh, and this is where Kume encountered music that he liked. Um, he said, a piece was played, which was about an American captured in the War of Independence, whose patriotism hardened and, and who never yielded. Guess what song it is? Um, probably Spartan Star Spangled Banner. Um, the American audience, upon hearing this, could not stop applauding. They clapped and stamped their feet, demanding encore after encore, and it was some time before the hall settled down. And then, um, immediately after this, Kume launches on a somewhat non-musical meditation. Although the countries of the world differ in size, each is dedicated to its ways of life. And if a nation achieves independence, a spirit of patriotism inevitably wells up in their hearts. It is rather like loving oneself and one's home above other places. Therefore, the patriotic mind naturally gives rise to humane feelings and becomes a source of loyalty. When the people of Europe and America talk about civilization, it's based on patriotism. Any person who forgets himself, abandons his house, turns his back on his home village, and despises his own country is not only ignorant of Confucian principles, but has also failed to grasp Western civilization. So here, Kume not only points to here, here, the efficacy of patriotic sentiment, right? The, the, or the efficacy of music in spurring patriotic sentiment, which in a sense is a kind of democratizing move, right? Because it's a sense that now perhaps there could be a music that cuts across the, status, uh, the status barriers, that could, that could overcome the kind of uh, denigration in music that, for example, Kikoa exhibited, and could actually unite all Japanese. Right? That's a kind of possibility that Kume is seeing with music. But notice also that in making that move, Kume is making 
appeals to a different kind of hierarchy, uh, that he and other key members of the embassy were becoming increasingly aware of. And that hierarchy is that of civilization, right? In which, uh, in the words of Kuzai Pichu, the Japanese intellectual, uh, the Western countries were the civilized countries, and Japan was, in his word, semi-civilized, right? And so there's a sense that we need to catch up. And so we get to a point where music become, music is identified with civilization. And so the Meiji state uh, finds itself in a dilemma. On the one hand, it needs music. It needs a public kind of music. It needs to foster that. And yet when these officials, these samurai officials, look at what's happening in the musical culture of Japan, they don't really see anything they can use, um, be either because they see the commoner's music and feel this generations-old aversion to it, or they look at the more refined music of the imperial court or the shogun's court and feel that they're too uh, refined. And so the, sol the solution that the Meiji state comes to is to adopt Western art music, aka Western classical music, as the civilizational standard, as the basis of making what the officials then called national music. So, So by 1887, the states builds a national conservatory, uh, the same year that actually Okakura Tenshin and Ernest Fenelosa, uh, who probably in Boston area is known for helping to create MFA's East Asian art collection early on in the late 19th century, um, they also created the same year the National Art School. And, and on the music side, the music that is taught in this conservatory is Western classical music. And the kind of music that will be developed for the public education system, the newly created mandatory education system, will also largely be based on Western music. And before I go on to the 20s, it's this kind of institutions, right? The, the conservatory, the national music education system, that by the end of the Meiji era in 1912, when the emperor dies, basically gives, gives birth to what we could think of as the music establishment of Japan. Uh, people who have graduated from the conservatories, people who have graduated from national universities, uh, and so forth. Now, in 1932, a critic named Nakai Masakazu writes a provocative article in, and that circulates that gets circulated in the National Daily Asahi called The Dissolution of Dan. Uh, and what he does there is several things. He first identifies several fields in Japan's cultural landscape uh, that he sees as Dan, right, a cultural establishment, including, quote, literature, visual art, music, poetry, haiku, uh, as well as academic and critical circles, end quote. Ironically, invoking the language of the Meiji Constitution uh, and its description of the emperor, Nakai argued that each of these establishments had come to form a, quote, inviolable and sacred space, quote, which, zealously, which was zealously guarded by what he called the brokers of artistic exchange, who used these establishments not only to preserve artistic integrity, but also their own economic welfare. But according to Nakai's analysis, the very fundamental structure of Dan was actually now under threat because of changes in fundamental economic context. And the times now demanded 
the artistic establishment across the board to turn into what he called capitalistic corporate formations. For Nakai, the film industry in particular represented the example of an a new kind of art form right, that incorporated this capitalistic corporate formations, and he saw it as a very promising form of art. And I think Nakai's formulation captures well what was going on in 1920s Japan in what I see as Japan's first mass media uh, revolution. And there are several things I think that, that people have identified uh, that was happening here, but generally what you see is a sort of broadening of access to various kinds of media outlets. So one of them is, uh, probably the more famous one, is the publishing industry and the way that it exploded in these decades. Uh, in 1925, a major publishing company called Kodansha published this magazine, King. This is the cover and the title page of the content, table of contents page of the very first issue. Um, but this was a, one of the first journals to target uh, the urban masses, as it was called then, right? The Taishu. And in the words of journal's editor, the journal targeted, quote, those who were slightly, abo slightly above the bottom of the intellectual pyramid, in quote. <laughs> and so measuring on entertainment, each monthly issue was voluminous and inexpensive, a formula that proved to be a major success. And by 1928, this magazine will boast a circulation of over a million. And this also spurs other competing, more sort of highbrow journals, uh, if you know Japanese uh, journal scene like Chuo Koron or Kaizo to also pursue sort of a, a, a way of massifying their products. And they begin, for example, uh, publishing very cheap version of uh, sort of series of you know, world literature or series of Japanese literature. Um, each book, apparently, each monograph apparently sold for one yen, uh, and hence it was called the Anbon or one yen book boom. Uh, but all of these expands the readership massively. Right? And so from what was uh, a very narrow slice of highbrow readership, you actually get a mass readership in Japan. You also see a similar move in 1925 also when the radio broadcasting begins in Japan. It begins uh, first with JOAK, which is a Tokyo broadcaster. By the next year, it merges with the broadcaster in Osaka and Nagoya uh, to form what we now know as NHK, Nippon Hoso Kyokai, the National Broadcasting Service. Um, and while this particular entity remained under very strong state control, um, and it still is, and in fact, more recently, it's, there's been interesting politics about how, how much state control uh, is resurfacing over NHK. Um, but despite that, or perhaps because of that, NHK becomes probably the most common form of electronic media in Japanese homes by 1945. Um, by that year, in large part to the war, about 45% of Japanese households have radio transmitters, which is a penetration rate that is only surpassed by US, Germany, and UK in that year. So fairly high development of radio. And as I'll talk a little bit later, Western music becomes one of the things that NHK promotes from very early on. And so the national broadcaster gets in the business of promoting certain kinds of music, in this case, the music of the Western, uh, music of the, the establishment. But there's another music-related mass media development in the same year. In 1927, 1928, companies like Polydor, Victor, Columbia, established 
their own uh, subsidies in Japan and drops huge amount of capital. And this is a period, I think, that kickstarts Japan's music industry. Um, and their most iconic product that I mentioned very early on is this yukoka, or popular song, that they literally called. And there were several things that's worth noting about these uh, popular songs. Uh, first of all, the musical content of these songs tended to sort of ran the gamut. Some of them were more jazzy sounding, uh, but m the mainstream of it were more the syncretic musical idiom, musical sort of music that combined both Japanese, native E, traditionally E um, musical elements, as well as uh, Western musical idioms. Um, it also tended to feature lyrics that sang a lot about uh, sort of the modern uh, cityscape or sort of various aspects of modern life. And they tended to feature sort of big name poets, uh, music uh, composer, etc. But probably the most important and noteworthy, uh, even back then, feature of this industry, or this song, the style of Ryukoka, was the way in which the songs were produced, and primarily the way in which the record, record recording industry exerted almost complete control over the production of these songs, from the writing of the songs and the writing of the music, all the way to the pressing of the records. Um, and this is what um, one contemporary observer and social critic, Honda Asinosuke, had to say about Yukoka in particular. Today, popular songs are being created all the time, day and night. Of course, new popular songs emerged in the past as well, but those songs were created out of the collective sentiment of the people. It was the spirit of times and popular sentiment that made them sing. Nowadays, commercial popular songs are created by the recording companies and their capital, and, and recording companies and their capital and machines sing the songs. Dumbfounded, people simply admire this process as it unfolds. As a commodity, all that is expected of a single popular song is that it astonishes the people momentarily and sell a few hundred thousand records within a short time. And so there's a kind of a new expectation of what popular song is, this sort of time-limited commodity that is fully controlled by the recording industry and is, and is sung, as it were, by machine. And I think one of the most sort of salient examples of the control that the recording industry had over Yukoka is the fact that even the most famous poets and composers who wrote the songs for, uh, uh, who wrote you know, the, the song, the music, and the lyrics for the Ryukoka were actually hired as salaried employees of the recording industry, right? not as uh, freelancers. So it's a little wonder then that contemporary observers of music and other cultural forms identify the rise of mass media and commercialization of culture with the breaking breakdown of existing cultural norms. Uh, in fact, seemingly out of despondency, one music critic went as far as suggesting that the speed with which life in general progressed in the modern era made all things, including music, so fleeting as to render any discussion of superiority or inferiority in music meaningless. And of course, if that's the case, you can imagine what it does to a music establishment that purports to protect a certain kind of standard, right, and, and canon. And yet it's also important to note that the same mass media revolution, the expansion of the publishing industry, the expansion of radio, and, and the recording industry as well, actually also helped the existing establishment, in this case the music establishment, continue in some way uh, what it felt was its cultural mission, and engaging a new and expanding uh, number of members of society. 
And here we get to Horiuchi Keizo. Sorry that I don't have a better quality image, but this is an image I think from his 50s, and I think it captures the kind of person he, he is, as I'll talk about it, uh, smoking a cigar very languidly in his chair. Um, so as I said, Master's of Science in Mechanical Engineering, MIT, 1923. Uh, he was born in a wealthy household uh, that, was, that gained its wealth by, if you grew up in Japan, you would have heard of this, Asadame. Uh, which is a kind of a cough drop. Um, and he, by the time he was born, the family was fabulously wealthy. He grew up in the Kanda neighborhood of Tokyo. And he talks about how as he grew up, even as a young child, that he was fascinated with Western music. Uh, he talked about how he uh, followed around street bands uh, called Jinta, or how he attended Western concerts in outside parks and so forth. Uh, and when once he got into sort of schooling, he gain more formal training in music. But the place that he probably had the closest encounter with the music establishment uh, was in private salons of, of another wealth, uh, fellow wealthy Japanese. And this is a man named Otaburo Moto, who uh, became Japan's first well-known music critic. And Otaburo uh, grew up in a wealthy family. His father was a pioneer of hydroelectrics in Japan. And so he built, actually, uh, what is now the Kyushu Electric Company, the Kansai Electric Company, um, so sort of a big family. And so he used his father's money to get into all sorts of artistic pursuits. Uh, but in particular, Otakuro went into music. Uh, I think he went overseas, uh, but his activity was primarily in Japan. And it was in Otakuro's salon where young high school age Horiuchi got to know many other men, young men, who would eventually together form the core of Japan's music establishment in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but true to, true, as, to, as it was the case for actually most uh, young Japanese men in wealthy families in this period, their family didn't approve of a career in music, right? And this, I think you still see some remnants of the earlier bias that I talked about. So he had to get into some kind of respectable business. And he, wanted, he was interested in cars from a younger age. So he said he wanted to study mechanical engineering. Uh, and so he did his BA at Michigan, and then went on to uh, Massachusetts, uh, MIT, in 1923. And I looked it up on the MIT library website. His master's thesis is an experimental determination of Poisson's ratio. Um, my students, of course, who have assured me that it has something to do with mechanical engineering, but I can't tell you any more than that. Um, but as it turns out, even as Horiuchi studied engineering in America, he spent much of his time also in America attending concerts, uh, joining choirs, taking music classes. When he was at MIT, he basically spent every weekend either attending a concert at BSO or uh, oftentimes uh, taking a trip up to New York, down to New York, attending theaters, operas there, and so forth. And uh, the way that he talks about this experience in sort of, uh, in his memoir, also kind of gives you a sense that he comes from money, right? He, there's a reason why he's able to do these kind of things. Now, Horiuchi goes back to Japan in September of 1923, right after the Great Kanto Earthquake destroys Tokyo area. Uh, and in, in the months that followed, in his word, he dithered. Uh, and wasn't sure exactly what he was going to do. Uh, but he, one thing that he did do was definitively abandon engineering. 
uh, because by 1925, he was actually hired as a teacher at a private conservatory in Tokyo area. And in 1926, he's actually hired as the main programmer of Western music programming at NHK, at the, at the National Public uh, Broadcaster. But he didn't just do music. Um, he, you know, and this is what he has to say about why he did this. Um, it looks funny from today's perspective, but our imagination back then could not have possibly envisioned the flourishing of radio today. The same could be said for phonograph records and talkies. These provided new and interesting opportunities for work, but they also prompted anxieties about, about what any of them would amount to in the end. While he was at NHK, he would be involved in doing things like uh, sort of setting up what kinds of classical music would be broadcasted. He would also try to broadcast some jazz programming. But also, he would eventually get into things like uh, translating American pop songs for the recording industry. So in 1928, he translates a, what was a hit in the US back then called My Blue Heaven and the Song of Araby, which is largely forgotten, I think, in America by now. Uh, but My Blue Heaven is actually very well remembered in Japan, uh, in part because musicians keep on playing it, but also, I think, because it's actually featured in Japan's first talkie film uh, called My Neighbor and My Wife. And I want to show you a few clips of the last ending scene of my, neighbor, my Neighbor's Wife and Mine, which features Horiuchi's song. So let's hope that the sound works. So actually, let me... So the story of the film is about this struggling playwright who, who just procrastinates throughout the film. Uh, and while he's procrastinating, he's his, his also distracted because the, from his neighbor's house, he hears this, this incessant noise, as they call it, of jazz. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, the person who lives next door, my neighbor's wife, is a lead singer in a jazz band. And so her, her, her band is practicing, right, even as he's trying to write. And so he goes there to complain. Uh, but she gets lured by the powers of jazz. Uh, he hangs out with the pretty neighbor's wife. Uh, in the meantime, his wife is really upset. She starts to get jealous and angry. Um, and he decides to change, you know, change his ways and decides to work really hard, earn his cash, and take care of his family. And so here it says, from that night, uh, the playwright uh, speeded up. And it says, speed up. Uh, and worked hard to finish his uh, play, and apparently he did, uh, because this is the ending. family stroll in the countryside or in the suburbs actually this is the, the suburbs then and the daughter starts imitating the you know the laborers the very modern looking wife 
isn't very happy with this. She's embarrassed because she says, you know, those people are staring at you guys. And now the daughter says, Papa, Papa, I want to go pee. Um, this is Enomoto um, Cage, who is one of the most famous comedians from the pre-war era. So the mom tells the daughter to, you know, just hold on, just wait. The dad wants to let her do it wherever. And then they hear a sound in the sky. And it's an airplane. This is the first sound film. So you can kind of tell that they're kind of gratuitously using sound, right? Whenever they have the opportunity. But then the airplane gives them a happy memory back when they were lovers. And they start to get all lovey-dovey and says, you know, hey, maybe we can take a flight to Osaka together. Notice the kind of long hair and the scar. And then the music starts to play. And this is the tune of My Blue Heaven. It says, the next door, the next door neighbors are playing My, my Blue Heaven. How nice. And of course, that neighbor is a jazz band. It says, oh, when you hear that song, don't you remember about back then? <laughs> and they break into at least la la laing the song, not actually singing the lyrics. But they don't. Oh, they forgot the baby. Because of it being featured in this major sort of film achievement in Japan, uh, the song, which sort of sings about the blissful domestic life, is actually still pretty well remembered in Japan to this day. Um, and Horiuchi actually goes on to expanding his activities across different realms. He goes on to be the music director of the Shochiku Film Studio, which uh, was one of the pioneering film studios and sound film in Japan, featuring, among others, uh, the young Mizokuchi Kenji 
director. Um, he would also go into publishing. He would go into publishing major music journals as editor, as the main publica publishing publications owner. Um, and in the post-war era, he would continue his activities back at NHK, uh, sort of being featured in this uh, quiz show called the, the Fountain of Conversation, which was largely uh, modeled on the American quiz show, Information Please. And in the post-war era, he's known as kind of as a household name of sort of all things music-related, uh, you know, uh, trivia, etc. So from 1920s onwards, Horiuchi embarks on this multimedia career that in the course of which enables him to promote the priorities, the standards, the hopes, the aspirations of the music establishment in Japan, which is trying to spread, popularize Western classical music in Japan. Now, scholars have pointed out that Horiuchi had somewhat dark moment during World War II when he actually goes into tirade in various media outlets against jazz uh, as the enemy music. Um, and, and so he, in a way, turns his back on the kind of music that he was actually introducing early on in the 1920s. But I think it would be a mistake to think of that as a sign that Horiuchi was becoming uh, anti-Western or anti-Western music. Because in one of the same articles where he's uh, denouncing jazz, he calls against what he calls, quote, narrow-minded nationalism, which, quote, uh, tries to promote domestic music that was produced by the Edo, that is pre-restoration of Japan. Uh, and if anything, if there was an enemy that Horiuchi and other members of the music establishment had, it was the Ryukoka. It was the popular song that the recording industry was spreading, that's selling very successfully. Uh, but instead of capitulating to the capitalist might of the recording industry, Horiuchi and his colleagues, some of his other colleagues, will use this new mass media as a platform, again, to promote their standards, their establishment, and to an extent, well into the post-war period, into the 1950s, 1960s, they succeed in certainly popularizing Western classical music, but also uh, maintaining some of their crusade against popular music and popular songs. Uh, and in that sense, I think mass media was a way that actually extended, uh, even as it forced, extended hierarchy, even as it forced the music establishment in Japan to change. I think I am going to leave it at that for now. I have other clips that I can play later, uh, but thank you very much. Excuse me. Questions and discussion now. Uh, maybe I'll start it off uh, if that's okay. Uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the hierarchy and democracy and, and its relation to music and media. I mean, I'm wondering: are there some aspects of music and media that are part of the democracy yeah. impulse, and some part that are? Is there a way for us to distinguish? Like, how, how can we understand which parts of media are more democratizing, which parts are more hierarchy reinforcing, based on your research? So, I think what what I find in someone like Horiuchi is that actually both the democratizing impulse and the hierarchical impulse live together in him. Right? Because the democratizing side of Horiuchi's story is that he really wants 
his contemporaries, his, his compatriots, to be able to enjoy and appreciate what he and his colleagues in the music establishment feel is good music, real music, right? Now again, their decision of where what good music is and what the standard is comes from a kind of Western civilizational hierarchy. Um, but their impulse to spread it, to popularize it, is actually in some sense democratic. And I think NHK, the radio, does democratize Western art music to the Japanese audience as nothing else could have done precisely because it's piping this into a growing number of Japanese homes. Uh, even, and the corollary is that in the pre-45 era, the NHK is very shy about uh, broadcasting pop music, the Ryukoka or the popular songs that the recording industry was producing. So uh, again, a mix of hierarchy and democracy there. I think it's not really easy to separate out sort of one camp as being completely democratic or mm -hmm. one camp as being completely mm -hmm. hierarchical. Because you, you know, in some sense you can also tell in uh, Gonda's description of the industry here, here that, right? That there's actually, again, a different kind of hierarchy that's being created. Hierarchy of capital, hierarchy of machine, etc. that perhaps is not entirely democratic. Okay. I've asked people to introduce themselves, too, because not everybody knows everybody. Uh, Nikki so. played a professor of music at Boston University. Um, I, was, I noticed that in one of your slides, um, I think it was of um, Horiuchi um, commenting on U.S., uh, his musical experience in the U.S., and I, I think... Oh, you mean the Kikala? Um, there was, like, you... German music was highlighted. So oh, that was that was the the very first one, the T. Oh, Smith. Okay. Um, so I was just wondering if that thread continues. Um, you know, like if there's you mentioned Western classical music kind of as a whole, but um, I'm wondering if there's like a distinction between a German camp and a French camp, um, and then also the jazz thing. So what's what's happening in terms of sure. these these alliances? Sure. Uh, so as far as the the Gakudan, the music establishment, is concerned in the pre-war era, there isn't really a distinction or like war between the French camp or German camp. There are composers who are known as, you know, more German side, for example, uh, Yamada um, Kosaku, right, the very sort of first preeminent uh, composer, um, spends good time in Germany, right? And there are others, uh, like Nobuto Kiyoshi is also another one like that. Um, during the wartime, of course, it becomes easier to perform German music, French music, because it's technically under Vichy France, Italian music, and less so Benjamin Britten, right, among others. Um, and, but, you know, there's, the music establishment is dealing with a broader public that can't differentiate between German music or French music, either, right? And they're really hoping that people would have a much more sort of generalized appreciation for, for uh, good music. Um, and I don't think they're going to quibble about French or German at that level. Although within the obviously within the establishment, there are people there. There are preferences. Jazz is really interesting because again, sort of Horiuchi straddles both the kind of the more art music side and Western popular music, right? In the case of jazz, um, and the way that Horiuchi explains his involvement and justifies his ex 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 involvement, in particular in jazz 
is that he sees it as a far better alternative to the homegrown popular songs, the syncretic, um, you know, the music of Nakayama um, Shinpei or you know other sort of popular song composers. He sees jazz as a far better alternative, right? And I think that that's where jazz in the Japanese context actually gets put in the larger context of what the, what people already then called Western music, yogaku, which is seen as more elevated. And so uh, they many of the members of Gakudan or the music establishment hoped that jazz would kind of be the gateway drug into a, a better, higher musical taste. Um, now, by the time you get to 41, 42, 43, there's a massive recanting of the earlier sins of getting involved in jazz. Uh, but actually, what they do even during the wartime is they relabel jazz into light music. Uh, and they basically keep on playing it. They keep on performing it. Is there a racial discourse to play around jazz? I think the latter is exactly what's going on because um, both My Blue Heaven and The Song of Araby was, I think, a song that was popularized by George Whiting, um, quite literally, um, who, who, was the, right, who was the musician who was known for whitening jazz. Uh, and, and there was a kind of racial anxiety, I think, among the Japanese sort of members of uh, music establishment about some of the more jazzy jazz, as it were. Um, I think even those would have probably been more preferable to the homegrown pop music, but it's the racial tension is already there, and it comes out more in the open in the post-war era when the U.S. occupation brings in uh, not just white servicemen, but African-American servicemen. And in that context, sort of the cultural, racial uh, anxieties actually sort of come up again, and, and music gets involved uh, to some extent. Um. Thank you for the great talk. Uh, Daniel Smith, University of Arizona. Um, I wanted to ask about something that might be beyond the kind of your research, but in sort of the civilizational discourse post-Meiji, um, you have this colonial move that's happening as well. So, you know, Japan sort of development was happening at the same time as they were developing their colonial holdings and, and sort of following on the West in, in other respects. Um, do you have examples or, or did you encounter things where uh, the versions of Western music uh, were being translated to, say, Taiwan or the Korean Peninsula in a different way for those populations than they were for, say, the NHK listening public domestically? Um, was there some sort of calibration there uh, for things that were seen to be sort of popular consumables for a Japanese audience, but not for, say, a colonial audience where there's a different sort of developmental uh, viewpoint from the Meiji? Among, uh, you mean among when they were trying to pick from Western musical? Yeah, what sorts of, so the, the balance between, say, the popular, the vulgar popular music yeah. that they didn't want to necessarily support among their own right. population right. Uh, versus sort of, uh, sort of Western classical music uh, that would be right. fit for consumption right. and the state-sponsored one. So I think there's two ways, two avenues. One is through education system, right? So when Japan colonizes Taiwan, uh, starting in 1895, um, they will eventually build an education system, et cetera, a music education system. And there, I think, actually, there is a, a training of people in the Western art music that happens. I was actually in Taiwan, Taipei, in June. And the National Library actually had an exhibit on 
uh, Taiwanese composer uh, of the pre-war era who was very much trained in the Western art tradition, but also had ongoings with sort of West uh, Japanese members of Japan's music establishment. Um, and so there's some connection there, I think, uh, across uh, the sea, as it were. Um, the recording industry, the kind of music that was um, sold in the colonies is, I think, my impression, and I have colleagues who are far more specialists in this, but my impression is that, so there were local music industry in Korea and Taiwan, but oftentimes, once we get to the sort of full-fledged you know, recording industry with large factories, et cetera, what would oftentimes happen is they might, they will do recording in Tokyo and the pressing in some other, some factory in Japan, and then send the records back to uh, you know, Taipei or Seoul. And the kinds of music that, that would be sold, my sense is that it was far more localized in terms of style and preference. So it, it reflected local popular genre, uh, local um, idioms. Now, now that as, as I'm talking, it, you know, there's, there's a one very famous way, right, that actually the, the, the flow actually goes back, which is uh, when the popular song composer Koga Masao um, is very famous for incorporating Korean folk tunes, right, uh, Arirang uh, in particular. And he, I think he was born in Manchuria, and he talks about that background. Um, so there, and he sort of, he incorporates some what seems like colonial appropriation <laughs> into uh, his own music activity in Japan as well. So there was that flow. But I'm not aware that sort of the music establishment in Japan actually tried to send different kinds of Western music uh, to Japan versus to the colonies. I think I would presume that they would still try to send the same thing. Yeah, uh, back there. Um, thanks for a great talk. I'm Andy School and the grad student here at CMS. I'm really interested in this. Uh, you mentioned one critic, you know, specifically called out the kind of mechanistic production um, of the popular songs, and I'm, I'm just curious how much, or to what extent, that perception had a hold on the public who were consuming these materials. Yeah. Whether people recognized it as a mechanistic structure or even celebrated that, or whether there was kind of effort on the industry's part to produce characters from among the, the biggest outlet of people. Could be with these yeah, great question. So this quote comes from a newspaper, fairly wide circulating newspaper. So he is in this context already speaking to a larger audience. That uh, and he would, you know, he would be quoted most likely as an expert, right? So he would be trying to enlighten and enlighten the public on what is going on in the industry. Um, but I think there was definitely an attraction for a mechanistic music to a certain extent. And radio is part of it. Um, one of the things that actually happens in this period that I didn't really talk about too much is that it's not just that there are different kinds of mass media that's emerging. It's that in the case of popular song, the, the ryukoka genre, uh, it's actually marketed, packaged across the different media. So the record oftentimes, the very early popular song, an early popular song would be produced by the recording industry, then you know tied up with a film, uh, even in the pre-sound era, um, which is interesting, right? And my sense is that in, in Japanese silent cinema, there's of course this tradition of silent film, si silent film narrators, 
right, who actually talks through the entire uh, screening and explains what's going on. But sometimes the silent screen narrators would also sing. Uh, and there would usually be a small band next to them as well. Um, and they would also tie up with uh, serialized novels in uh, these mass journals. So one of the very early popular songs, the Tokyo March, was actually initially a uh, serialized novel that was serialized in Kingu, and, and then turned into film. And because the film company wanted a song to advertise the film, they turned to Victor and said, can you make us a song? And that's how one of the first hit songs of, uh, I think, 1929 emerged. And Kingu itself also self-consciously sort of modeled itself to an extent on radio, as one scholar points out. Uh, and they literally talked about itself as a radio-like uh, outlet. Uh, and so, you know, radio is a buzzword in this period. Um, another form of mechanized sound, right? And I think um, together there is a kind of both an understanding of and actually not just a kind of uh, foreboding, <laughs> but I think, um, I mean, Gonda even alludes to it, right? Dumbfounded, people simply admire this process as it unfolds. Uh, a kind of fascination with the way these media is unfolding it, and, and I think, up to quote another keyword from this area, in a very speedy manner, right? Speedo is also another word that sort of is a very big buzzword in this area. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Marie. Um, Marie, I'm from BU, Student Music. Um, thank you for a great talk. Um, I have a question about, so I, I'm fascinated by this hierarchy of democracy music industry um, picture, and I, I'm wondering if you could bring back that patriotism, nationalism um, component back into it, because I'm, I realize that Kume's first um, view towards music, positive view towards music, comes from this potential to promote yeah. nationalism, and yet yeah. by the time Horiuchi actually realizes it, he's using it to sort of put down Japanese culture in a way. Yeah, right? sure, sure. So sure. there seems to be sort of a, an ironic development there, but it doesn't seem that he's entirely looking down on his own base either, right? There right. seems to be some really complex feelings about the syncretic yeah. formations yeah. because, you know, I only know his writing in Jinta Kodokata, right? Right, right. And right. Jinta is kind of a hybrid formation. Yeah. Yeah. And their yeah. repertoire isn't just jazz and yeah. Western Absolutely. music, yeah. but he writes and he only applauds jazz breaks and sort of Western moments in the music, yeah. but I don't think he's dismissing the syncretization entirely, right? right? So right. In and of itself. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more beyond maybe Horiuchi, whether the, his credit circle and other popular perceptions, how, how is that tension played out yeah, yeah. in relation to the question of you know, nationalism? Great question. I mean, I think Horiuchi you know, grew up in Kanda, right? Kind of a Nashitamachi, the low town, not exactly a working class neighborhood, but part of Tokyo that still had an old feel to it. Mm -hmm. And his family also, I, I think, was a kind of, not the part of the new middle class, right? They were kind of the old middle class, a kind of neighborhood, initially at least, candy manufacturer that kind of went really big. Um, and he talks about his, you know, family enjoying traditional Japanese, commoner 
and music, right, and, and entertainment form. And I don't think he had quite the kind of aversion that Kika, for example, right, would have had. Um, and as he gets into becoming a professional music critic, professional music, you know, translator, radio broadcaster, he, I think, among the members of Japan's music establishment in the 20s, 30s, 40s, is probably the one who is most sympathetic to popular music and popularizing music, at least in theory, right? Um, and so he is fascinated by jazz. He is fascinated by certain kinds of syncretic um, music, and he uh, tries to navigate it, but he, when he talks about the ryukoka specifically, the popular song genre that the recording company produces, he takes what ranges from a uh, kind of let's stand back and see what happens to it and let it grow kind of view to a more critical view. And what he is afraid of in popular, in the ryukoka or the popular song genre is that the genre will be so dominated by the more Japanese sounding songs. So, in, you know, in the ryukoka genre of that period, there is a, you know, kind of a tension between uh, some of the earlier forms of popular songs that actually incorporated jazz elements very explicitly. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember exact examples of that. Um, but, but in the course of 31, 32, 33, the kind of, the, the center of the kinds of songs that the industry produces does tend towards sort of the more Japanese sounding songs. And he's afraid that that's a reflection in some sense actually of the growing nationalism uh, of so Japan. He's critical of the he is, okay. yeah. So there he actually identifies a sort of what he sees as the negative syncretic element with growing cultural nationalism. And he's afraid that that's actually going to push out uh, jazz or other Western kind of music. So and that's, again, another compl like complicating layer, right? I mean, he's not completely trying to bash traditional Japanese musical idiom, but he has an incredibly ambivalent relationship to it. Um, go ahead, yes. Um, hi, I'm Marie. Thank you for your enriching talk. I'm a visiting scholar at CMS, and the home base is, the, is at the University of Zurich, Switzerland. So I have a question about um, what I think was very interesting and fascinating is the idea of that music may enhance democracy or democratic processes. So I wonder, because I don't know enough about that, how was the, how could I imagine, how was the society structure sure. in 1886, you said, with the school system? Sure. Because you told Absolutely. people had to go to school to have access to music and to all the education connected to right. that kind of Western music. So who had actually access? Was it a public school system? Right. Everybody had access? Yeah. Or was it very, um, so with different classes? So I would like to know more about that. Absolutely. So one of the first tasks, or the, one of the key tasks of the major restoration government, as it emerges in the course of 70s, is that they, they realize that they basically want to build a Western-style nation-state. And this is, of course, the same era where Germany is becoming Germany and Italy is becoming Italy. And they, it becomes a priority by early 70s that they want to build a nation out of the Japanese. 
uh, and national, you know, and citizens. Um, now, and their idea of the previous regime, which is in many ways true, is that in the previous samurai-dominated regime, there, the, one of the organizing principles of that society was hierarchy, the sense that hierarchy was natural, that inequality was natural. And so very stereotypically, uh, this, that society promoted a kind of four-status system where the samurai was on top, there was, and th there were the commoners, the peasants, the artisans, uh, the, uh, the merchant classes, and then there were outcasts. And it is true that the, that the Tokugawa shogunate, the, the regime, the, the pre-reformation, restoration regime, um, generally ruled by having the society being divided into different groups, divided by their status, divided by their occupation, um, and so there was a sense that in that society it was not possible to have a citizen, right, or have a sense of national identity collectively. And so in order to precisely to foster that, in 72, the government establishes a compulsory education system from elementary through uh, middle school is what they envision to be compulsory. And in that context, they would train all Japanese children in sort of math, you know, language, etc. But they also provided for music, um, and the rationale was precisely that in the previous era, because of the status distinctions, people's musical tastes were so divided, uh, and the Meiji uh, official attitude was much like Kikawa's attitude: the sense that it was so divided that it was bifurcated between the super refined court music versus the incredibly, horribly vulgar commoner music. Now, again, the reality is a quite a bit more complicated, but that's the rhetoric that the new government used uh, in order to justify, certainly, education, right? We, if people are so divided, we need to unite them, and in the, by extension, music as well. And in that process, what the government came to a conclusion is that we need to create a whole new music. We need to create a national music that could be sung by everyone. Uh, without being embarrassed, uh, which was a rhetoric. And actually, that's a rhetoric that uh, resurfaces again during World War II, when the state is officially uh, in a war against jazz, and where frivolous music uh, that talks about love or whatever else is frowned upon, uh, and the government during the wartime says, we need, we need a public popular song, as opposed to private popular song. That's literally the language that they use. Uh, songs that could be sung by everyone openly and then in the public, songs that would unite the people. Um, and that I think harkens back to that major moment where the education system itself is trying to sort of unify the people. Um, by the time the education system is in place, Japan is technically a classless society, or at least officially. Um, so the commoners are all united in, uh, to one class. The samurai class is abolished. Uh, by the samurai leader of the restoration themselves. There is technically an, a very small sliver of aristocracy, but those are members of the imperial household, close members of the imperial court, uh, and former samurai lords. And all other Japanese, including government officials on down, are technically equal. Um, in terms of social classes, uh, the Meiji era is still sort of in the process of industrialization, so it's really in the 20s and 30s when you start to see 
sort of awareness of middle class, working class, and upper class. Um, and so that's also the period where mass media actually emerges, right, which is not a coincidence. So, sorry for the roundabout response, but I hope that was helpful. Yes, back there. Hi, yeah, uh, Gordon also writing to student in CMS. Uh, I would like to follow up actually on Andy's question and, and a little bit of what you were just talking about, uh, which is I'm really interested in this sort of wonderfully frank acknowledgement that there's a corporate process to song production, right? Um, but I'm interested in sort of uh, tensions that you might have found between that conception and ideas of, say, celebrity or talent in music production or performance. Uh, because we yeah. often have the idea that that talent is undemocratically distributed, and so there's sort of implications for that in terms of where you are in the hierarchy. Uh, so I was wondering sort of if you saw these start to emerge and, and how they interact with this, this other conception of how music is produced. In. It's a really interesting era because, um, as I briefly mentioned, everyone who's involved in popular song making in this, at least in this decade. Uh, is technically the employee, right, of, of the company, uh, the exclusive employee, and uh, and when the music industry starts, there are different sort of statuses that different members who are part of the, the production process are, are found that find themselves in. So I think, ironically, at the very beginning of the industry, um, the people who are well, not maybe ironically, maybe this is un understandable. So. Uh, they needed to find professional composers and they, professional lyricists at the beginning very quickly to, to make their songs. And so they would go to members in the music establishment, uh, you know, products of Western, uh, cons Western style conservatories or the literature establishment. And in fact, uh, one of the most prolific early lyricists, a guy named Saijo Yaso, uh, was a, uh, even as he was writing song lyrics uh, until about 1940s, he was a French literature professor at Waseda University, which is one of the most prominent private universities in Japan. And for that, he was, in fact, treated as a kind of a traitor uh, by the literature establishment. Um, there's a kind of deflating of his value in that realm, because until then, he was actually known for very experimental poetry, uh, writing poetry for children, etc., etc. But once he's known as a kind of a lyricist, then that, that there's a kind of demoting that happens. Um, there's a different move in some sense, I think, for the singers. So the singers also typically tended to be uh, conservatory graduates, especially early on. Um, and that was, on the one hand, also seen as a kind of betrayal of the training <laughs> and betrayal of the establishment. But in the course of 30s, these people become stars. And they gain their own cultural capital, especially when they succeed in making it into the movies as well. Um, and in that context, you do actually start to see this new entertainment media asserting its own sort of hierarchy that is independent from the post-Meiji cultural hierarchies, right? That's sort of dominated by the conservatories and the universities, etc. And the industry sort of has its own logic. Um, and I think that carries on into the post-war era. Um, but those two things are intention. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, just like following on this thread a little further. I mean, this quote is so amazing. It's like straight up Adorno and Horkheimer. It's like I know, I, and I tried to figure out whether he was had anything to do with them, but and did they? 
I can't find any evidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same exact argument. It's, the repla- it's the replacement of the you know the true op- the authenticity of popular music with the yeah. artifacts of you know, culture industries. You know, it's uh, dumbfounded. The dupes are standing there. You know, it's. it's I mean, he is he is Marxian. Right. He, he is definitely Marxian. Right. He and as in fact, uh, much of Japan's social scientists were of this era. Right. Um, so there is that fact. So the question I have, I guess, sort of like in that context, so like we read, like, we read the Frankfurt School theorists now, and it's so uh, totalizing and reductive and leaves no room for um, either popular pleasure or also sort of popular participation in production processes, um, which don't only happen in quote-unquote traditional, you know, musical forms. So I guess I'm, I'm curious about two things. One is, is the... The radio and the diffusion of the uh, Western classical music, yeah. is that also being tied to sort of the spread of like, are people like buying pianos and instruments and learning how to play them in the home? And is, so is there like, when you say democratization, it's not just recep- democratization of perception, yeah. it's also yeah. about you know, learning, to, learning to play these forms and that becoming something that, that's acceptable. Yeah. But also I'm wondering about, so the, the, the autonomous left response to the Frankfurt School totalization of mass culture is looking at um, social movement and working class cultural production, mm. and so this is also a period of time when you know the um, uh, the labor unions all uh, are getting their hands on printing presses and are producing newspapers yeah. and they're producing songs yeah. and they're uh, trying to generate um, like I guess against the elite classes that are trying to produce uh, the the identity of the shared identity of the citizen of the nation state. Right. Um, there's also the labor movement. For example, that's trying to produce identity as as class, class identity, yeah. um, and use that as part of the process of yeah of, of mobilization. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that happening in Japan too? And what's the dialogue between, I guess, the yeah. working class musicians or intellectuals and this group of people? Yeah. Any... Great questions. Um, so, and I think my answer is going to be largely a kind of pre-war, post-war kind of differentiation for both, um, because popularization of sort of musical music as practice, I think diffuses far wider in the post-war era, um, and that it's a part of Japan becoming a mass middle-class society. Um, in the pre-45 era, phonographs, pianos, those things are still really, really expensive. And there's a close association between, uh, you know, a new sliver of new middle, urban new middle class, but these are university-educated, white-collar families, right? which are still very small, I think, in, even in 2030, something like 20% of the urban population. Um, so, but there is a kind of, actually, a, um, it's, um, a reception side culture that actually is already existent in the 20th, in the pre-war era, and that's the, that's the culture of the aficionados, right? Um, and that's actually the culture that, uh, that, Horiuchi, um, the, the music Horiuchi actually comes out of because he's really from, he doesn't go to conservatory. He goes through uh, a more, the regular, you know, conserv- uh, uh, mand- mandatory education system and then on to the more elite uh, higher education, high school, uh, and then on to, you know, university and engineering. And he is part of sort of a growing, gro- small sliver, but a growing number of young Japanese who are classical music fans, in a sense, at least at, at the beginning. And um, 
what the rise of radio and the recording industry does is actually sort of grow that strata, right, to an, to an extent. Beyond people like Kodiuchi who can actually go to America or go to Germany or, or other things. And there is a kind of, that strata is actually increasing. Um, but really it's in the post-war area that you actually see classical music becoming part of a middle-class thing, right? And that's where you get, um, so for example, Beethoven's Ninth is really, really popular in Japan. And it's a kind of mass phenomenon. Uh, and, but that's a post-war story. Um, the leftist story, I think, follows kind of a similar trajectory. Because there is, in 20s and 30s in Japan, uh, proletarian literature movement, proletarian music movement. But my impression is that the people who are mostly part of the proletarian music movement in Japan in the 30s is part of the music establishment. I mean, that's where they get the training. Um, that's you know, they, that's who they interact with. Um, and in fact, it's interesting because it's in the post-war era that some members of Japan's classical music establishment continue on the sort of mainstream, trying to mainstream popular music in a through official channels like NHK. And Horiuchi is an example of that. Um, others go on, you know, creating major orchestras and opera companies and things like that. And then there are the leftist, leftist musical establishment members who actually uh, began to sort of uh, create music movements and labor that's specifically tied to labor unions, uh, or a sing song, song singing or choral movement that is trying to uh, sort of bring a kind of more, um, it's trying to mobilize right, music and people together. Um, both of those movements are still pretty highbrow music that they're trying to sell, so there's still that sense in the 40s and even into the 50s. And at least in the Japanese context, I don't really see it until the 60s when the new left in Japan begins to critique the old left uh, for being elitist. And that's actually the decade when in Japan we see the birth of this genre called enka, uh, which is probably one of the better known popular music genres, which tends to be associated with traditional Japan. But what Enka really basically is, is remnants of the larger popular song genre that survived the sort of the um, fragmentation of the market and that was repackaged as sort of the traditional song, right? And so in that context, the syncretic, more Japanese sounding songs become traditional. But at least very early on, in the early to mid 60s, some new left critics felt that this could be the expression of uh, what they call dochaku, or indigenous, right, from the ground. Uh, and they try to explicitly popularize that kind of, or promote that kind of song. Um, it's also true that I think in the 50s there is a growing interest even among progressive critics and art types to try to get actually working class people to participate in producing uh, music, but I don't. I don't really know too much about how that uh, a movement that's super successful in that realm. Yeah, great questions. Hi, uh, thanks for the talk. I'm Jerry Caldwell. I'm an undergraduate student at CMS, um, and I'm just kind of seeing this kind of narrative of uh, men doing these kind of cultural scouting missions, so to speak, um, men being part of these art salons and these production and curation uh, processes. Uh, and the kind of breaking down, perhaps, of class lines. Yeah. But then I kind of wonder about gender lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is really striking, maybe not surprising, that uh, 
a bunch of the images shown and connected to uh, these musical productions uh, feature women. But uh, I wasn't really hearing yeah. where women are being featured in the production and curation and so on uh, processes. Absolutely, great question. Um, so one area where you see a lot of women uh, in late Meiji and into the 20th century is in music education. So one, so the, the National Conservatory actually serves two functions. One is to create the elite performers, composers, so forth, of uh, the national music establishment. And the other is to, actually at least initially, to train music teachers. Uh, and in that context, the, the state specifically uh, I think there's a large number of women that the state hires to, to go into that realm. Another area, though, um, is actually, so it's not to say that there aren't women performers who are elite musicians in this period. Um, fewer, um, and definitely almost non-existent among the critics, uh, which is interesting. So there is a kind of bifurcation of the music establishment in this period between the critics, the journalists, the scholars, versus the, the performers, right? And, and even um, com and compose composers and, you know, this is kind of, I mean, in some sense, this is, you see this in the West, West, in the West, Western musical establishment in the West as well, um, where y you see less women in, you know, composing or in conducting, right, for example, and you see more in the performing circle. Um, but in a more kind of, I think in an interesting realm, where women plays a prominent role is actually, I just briefly talked about how there's actually a growing class of, a small but growing class of aficionados, right? Young men who are interested in music, et cetera, especially as consumers. Um, but actually there are young women uh, and young aristocratic women, uh, as it turns out, in, in the 30s, 40s, who are sort of, in some sense, the big consumers of not so much not just records, but actually music lessons, right? And employers of uh, the, the products of the conservatory and so forth. So uh, there is um, uh, some of the best oral histories, actually, of, of the pre, of the 30s, 40s, sort of talking about, and people giving sort of account of what was happening on the music era, is actually uh, the, some of these women uh, who, who survived. Most of them are gone, um, but have talked about um, music being part of their aristocratic everyday life. And so there is a kind of, I think, a strong element of Western music in Japan as being part of sort of women's uh, uh, cultural accomplishment, right? What you were expected to uh, sort of, you know, learn in the course of your studies and the course of uh, growing up in that particular society. Um, so there's a... There, that's another area where you, where you see sort of prominence of women. Yeah. Thank you. Great question. Julie, last call. Last call. Uh, and we'll have a chance uh, at the reception to continue the conversation as you please. Please join me in thanking Hiromu.